Hey, thanks for being so nice to each other this morning. This is great. It's good to hear all your voices. You get to hear my voice a little bit now. <laughs> my name is Justin. I am one of the pastors here. I'm really glad that you're here today, and greetings to you at home. You can't make it today. Welcome to our second week in our series called Empowered. In this series, we emphasize the central role that the Holy Spirit has in the life of a believer. And today, I'm going to talk about the role of faith in healing. Uh, how about we pray and ask that God would help us receive whatever God has for us today? Does that sound like a deal? You could join your hearts with mine. Uh, God, thank you for your love. Thank you that we're all here today. And, you know, we're here and we want to hear what you have for us, God. So would you open our ears? Would you open our hearts to you and make it clear what you have for every single one of us uh, this morning? Uh, we trust you for it, Jesus. Amen. All right. Thanks for praying with me. Our main scripture today is from the book of Luke. Um, why don't we look at Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. I'm going to read it. It starts like this. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people, he returned to Capernaum. At that time, the highly valued servant of a Roman officer was sick and near death. When the officer heard about Jesus... He sent some respected Jewish elders to ask him to come and heal his servant. So they earnestly begged Jesus to help the man. If anyone deserves your help, he does, they said, for he loves the Jewish people and even built a synagogue for us. So Jesus went with them. But just before they arrived at the house, the officer sent some friends to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself by coming to my home, for I am not worthy of such an honor. I'm not even worthy to come and meet you. Just say the word. From where you are, and my servant will be healed. I know this because I am under the authority of my superior officers, and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say, go, and they go, or come, and they come. And if I say to my servants, do this, they do it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to the crowd that was following him, he said, I tell you, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. And when the officer's friends returned to his house, they found the servant completely healed. It's a great story. We'll come back to Jesus and this centurion in a little bit. But first, I'm going to take you back to uh, part of my life. I'm going to talk a little bit about school. I first arrived in the Twin Cities, and uh, I was here to attend Hamlin University in St. Paul. I graduated with a degree in psychology with a minor in writing. And Hamlin isn't a cheap school to go to, but I was able to go because I earned a presidential scholarship, and um, that paid for most of, my, uh, most of my tuition. And my parents were, like, super great and helpful, and they helped with the rest. So now in order to get a presidential scholarship, you need to have a really good GPA, grade point average. You need to have that in high school, and then you need to have a pretty good academic, well-rounded resume. And then you need to have the skill set to kind of get through writing these essays that say why you're awesome and why you deserve this thing. And then they do interviews, and you have to show up in these rooms, and all these people grill you on things. I was apparently good enough at all those things to get the presidential scholarship. But underneath that, I was also something else. I was really scared. Almost all the time. Even though I was good at school and I liked learning, I hated tests. I saw them as the possibility of failure every single time. 
I'd been stressed out by tests for as long as I could remember. In the second grade, I had a teacher named Mrs. Jelnick, and she went to my church. She was awesome. She brought a feeling of kindness and safety into her classroom. God bless all the teachers who do that well. Uh, but even in that place of kindness and safety, I was afraid to fail as a second grader. I remember taking a spelling test in Mrs. Jelnick's class, and she'd have us take the test, and then we would, she'd go to her desk, and then we would all go, and we'd get in line, and she would grade our tests kind of like one by one, okay? And so I was standing there in line for one of these spelling tests, and I noticed that about three, four people in front of me, somebody got a word wrong, okay? And I realized to my horror that I had misspelled the same word the same way. And so, I took my paper and I went back over here to my desk and I changed the word and then I very, very secretly, as secretly as a second grader can, <laughs> ended up back in line. When I got back up to the beginning of, you know, the line, and it was my turn to be graded, Mrs. Jelnick said, Justin, did you go and change something on your test? And I had a moment of increased panic, because then I realized cheating and getting caught is a, probably a worse way to fail <laughs> than getting the word wrong. And so I said, no, I didn't change anything. <laughs> I am sorry, Mrs. Jelnick. Um, I remembered that. She didn't, she didn't, I don't think she said anything else about it, but I remembered it. And I think that she did forgive me because actually when I graduated from college, she gave me a little stuffed animal and um, I thought that that was awesome. So um, <laughs> fast forward to my freshman year at Hamlin University. I was very aware that keeping my scholarship required a minimum GPA. Uh, I think it had to be either an A minus or a B plus average or higher. And looking back, a whole lot of my identity was riding on my grades. To me, good grades were a path to being successful, having a good future, and hence, feeling safe. There was one kind of test that threatened and scared me more than any other kind. It was the pop quiz. My fear of pop quizzes revealed a deeper fear that I had, that I was going to fail because I wasn't prepared. I feared that failing something as ridiculous as it is to say it out loud right now, I feared that failing something as simple as a test, any test, would somehow ruin my present and my future. That was my fear. Pop quizzes were the worst because you never knew when they were coming. You could not prepare. Or you would be like, maybe I'm going to get a pop quiz and I'm going to study a bunch of things, but you'd get to the pop quiz and a lot of times it wouldn't be what you studied anyway. You couldn't prepare for it. Life is like this. Life has a way of giving you pop quizzes. If you live long enough, you will find out that you're not always prepared for what life will throw at you. Have you found that? Mm -hmm. For those of us who have lived even a little bit of life, I bet you can look back and confirm that you didn't see some of what was coming. 
some problems that you didn't prepare for, some fights you didn't expect. Life has a way of catching you off guard and throwing things at you that you never thought you'd have to live through. But I think I can give you a secret. I think I can give you a hack about the pop quizzes of life. Life's pop quizzes are always multiple choice. Always. And there's always only four choices in front of you. Do you want to know what they are? Okay. When life is giving you a pop quiz, A, you can deal with it yourself. B, you can call on family and friends. C, you can ignore it and try to run from it. Or D, you can bring it to God. Now, maybe more than one of those sounds okay to you, and a number of those have good things in them. But today I want you to know that there's only one right answer when we're thinking about where we go first. You only get to choose one of those things first, and there's only one right answer for it. A is not the right answer because you will find out that life will bring you some issues you didn't have the resources or the capacity to deal with. Amen? You and I, we cannot handle everything by ourselves. B, wrong answer. Because you will find out quickly that some friends turn out to be fake or even turn out to be your enemies. And sometimes you made them your enemy. And many of you know that even if you have a family that loves you and friends that support you, they can't always help you with things that you're going through. You'll find that friends and family, even people in your church, even your pastor, any pastor on staff here probably too, don't have the power to get you through everything. Not by ourselves. C, also the wrong answer. Because there are some things uh, you can avoid for quite some time. Has anyone been an avoider? But eventually life will give you something you cannot avoid and you cannot hide from it. And you'll come face to face with the underlying fear that I actually had in my life. At some point, you'll be in a situation where nothing and no one is able to adequately help you. I'm here to tell you that that is exactly true. At some point, something will happen. You'll find yourself in a situation and no one and nothing can adequately help you. Because the only thing you can do when you've been completely got, uh, caught off by guard by life is D. Learn to give it to God. Learn to go to God. Bring it to God. There's help there. Always. So whether that's falling on your knees or lifting up your voice in prayer or maybe holding on to God's promises, maybe you know some Bible verses that are really helpful to you in those times. Or maybe it's just doing what I had to learn to do over time, giving up my fear, like actually bringing that to God. However that looks for you, God is able to handle any situation you find yourself in. God might move through some of those other things, you know, God might move through your family or your friends. God might give you a skill or an ability to like get through it or discernment or awareness that's going to help you. But God's always got to be the first. 
the only place that you can faithfully go to first. Has anyone else found that God has been able to help you and show you a way when there didn't seem like a way from anywhere else? I hope that you have. I hope that you will. I hope that we all continue to. I think we will. I believe it. You and I have to learn how to trust God. When we exercise that trust, it's called faith. Faith. You want to say that out loud for me? All right. We're all here today. Great. What does faith look like? Jesus says we can see it in the centurion in today's Bible story, and so we're going to go back to chapter 7 now, okay? Here we found Jesus in a town called Capernaum. It's little. And while he's there, he's met by a group of Jewish elders, we were told. The elders have come not to debate with Jesus, which they often did. They're, they're not there to accuse him of false teaching, which they did a lot of the time. They're not even there to debate whether he's the Messiah or not. They've come at the request of a Roman centurion whose servant is dying. During the time of the New Testament, the Jewish people were under Roman occupation. Centurions were kind of like the backbone of the Roman army. They commanded around 100 soldiers each. The Romans uh, were not the rulers that the Jewish people wanted. They wanted to rule themselves. But in the New Testament, the centurions are generally perceived in a pretty favorable light if you look at it. Here are some examples. In Acts 1, the centurion named Cornelius was among the first Gentiles, a.k.a. non-Jewish people, to convert to following Jesus. Another centurion who saw Jesus dying on the cross, he said, surely this was the Son of God. He's early to the game, isn't he? And in today's passage, the Jews have come to Jesus because this particular centurion is respected and helpful, especially financially helpful for, with the Jewish people. He built the church. He built the synagogue. And so when the servant of this Roman centurion is dying, he calls in a favor. He goes to the Jewish elders and asks them to go to Jesus and see if he will come and heal his servant. And so the Jewish elders go to Jesus and they say, Lord, we need you to help this guy because he's a good man. He's very good to us. He built the church, did we mention? He's very deserving. And Jesus agrees to make his way to the centurion's house. He's still making his way, and the Roman centurion sends out some other friends with another message. They say, if you remember back, Jesus, the centurion wants to know that he's not worthy of coming to you, nor is he worthy enough for you to come into his house. So instead, he says, Lord, you don't even have to come to my house. If you just say the word, my servant will be healed. That's when Jesus turns around to the crowd and says, I have never seen such great faith in all of Israel. Most of the time in the Bible when Jesus is mentioning faith or talking about it, he's commenting about the lack of it. He's usually saying something like, Oh, ye or you of little faith. Have you heard that verse, right? Or, how is it that you have no faith? He says that uh, to his followers at one point. But here, Jesus marvels at this man's faith, and he says, that's the type of faith I'm, I'm talking about. That's great faith. This is the only story in Scripture where Jesus marvels at faith this way. He calls it great faith. What is it that makes Jesus marvel at this faith and call it great? Better question yet. 
What kind of faith just generally makes God say, that's real faith, that's great faith, that's what I'm looking for? Here are some ways that this centurion's faith was different. This man doesn't know Jesus, so that's why he's sending the elders, right? He sends for Jesus with the expectation that Jesus will come. But he doesn't know what Jesus is going to do, does he? He's hoping Jesus will do what he asked, but he's aware that Jesus might not do it. This is the first thing we see about great faith. Great faith asks for and expects a yes, but it can endure a no. Some of us believe that when we pray and we say amen, this is just, I'm going to use an example that maybe you don't think you think this, but, but, but look deep in yourself, because I've been in this place too. Um, <laughs> like I wouldn't have said I was horrified that I was going to ruin my life by messing up one particular test, but that was true. Okay? Is this true? When we pray and when we say amen, that it ought to give us an automatic yes. And we become frustrated if God doesn't do what we ask. Great faith, like the centurion says, I want God to do it, and I will ask for it. But if the Lord chooses not to do what I ask, I still have faith that he's God. He's able to do it in a different way. Maybe God's going to do it in a better way. Do you have faith that can endure a no from Jesus? Can you say, God, if you don't do it, I still bless you. I still worship you. I still serve you because I can handle a no from you. I will tell you what, you know, leading worship in a place like this, it's especially, uh, it's especially noticeable when somebody's going through a tough thing and I know it and I see you worship. That's the kind of person I want to be. It blesses my heart when I see it. I think it touches the heart of Jesus as well. Great faith can handle and no. It's coming up on 18 years that my dad passed away from cancer, and I think it's great that we're doing this grief share. Um, I know people who've been miraculously healed of cancer, and I personally helped pray for some of those people. I sure prayed a lot that my dad would be healed of cancer. And it did not go that way. Today he is with Jesus, he's fully healed. And I get to see him again because of the resurrection power of Jesus. I have hope, right? Changes everything. And I have seen and keep seeing God do miraculous things. But I got to know from Jesus on that particular prayer. And if I'm being honest about it, somewhere inside me, I actually knew that it was going to be a no. It's really weird. I don't always know that it's going to be a no. But I did get a no on that. So this brings us to the second feature of the centurion's faith. He sends word to Jesus, and he asks him to come in verse 3. But in verse 6, when Jesus is already on his way, did you notice that he sends word again? And he says, don't come. How weird is that? He says, come. Jesus is coming. And he says, don't come. Maybe it's because of his faith. Maybe he's realized something. Maybe he's saying, I know what I asked Jesus but you don't have to do it the way I asked you to. I'm going to let you handle it however you want. I've got enough faith to know that you can still get the job done, even if you don't do it the way that I suggested. The centurion asks, 
and expects, but leaves space for Jesus to say, not that way. Great faith can handle a not that way. Can you say not that way? Mm -hmm. It's great faith when you can ask God for what you want and then step back and say, God, you don't have to do it the way that I just said, but I do want you to get it done. That's great faith. Can I get an amen from the control freaks in the room? That is great faith. You can do it however you want. Just get it done. Coming out of college, my plan was to set myself up for a good life. My list included doing what my mom suggested. She's actually going to preach, I think, in a couple weeks. And that's going to be fun. She suggested I get a really good education, then a well-paying job, and then I could go to a church, and I could support a pastor, and I could um, serve. This plan, she also said, and was very clear about this, would allow me to avoid the pain in the rear that comes with pastoral ministry. <laughs> my mom and my dad, you know, they pastored for years and years. I grew up in that. I had seen it. God wanted a good life for me, but he didn't want to do it by my mom's list, and he didn't want to do it by my list. I wanted my profession and my income to give me a good life. And Jesus gave me a not that way. Do you have a faith that can accept a no and also a not that way? Can you let God do it the way that God wants to do it? Great faith can handle a no. And great faith can handle a not that way. What's another thing that we could say and see about the faith that we notice in this centurion? When the centurion sends word to Jesus, the first thing he says is, I don't know if you remember this, that's why I'm reminding us, Lord, I'm not worthy. Did you catch that the Jews are asking Jesus to go because they're saying that he is worthy? They're saying the opposite. This guy did all this stuff. He's very deserving. You should heal this, this guy's servant because this guy's awesome, right? The Jewish people are giving their list for the, uh, on behalf of the centurion, right? The centurion says, here's the truth, Lord. They know a lot of good stuff I've done. But there's other stuff I've done that they don't know about. It's really good to have a religious resume. Like, it's good to have actual things that we can say and look at and say, this is the kind of stuff that I do because I follow Jesus, right? There isn't anything wrong with having a good list of, like, good deeds, but that's not the whole story for us. Chances are that many of us in the room, maybe this very, this very week, had some stuff happen or did some stuff that you wouldn't necessarily want to openly talk about here in this building right now. When we look around at each other, we don't have the whole story all the time, do we? Now, hopefully this is a safe place where you can be the real you and that Jesus can meet you in those places where you, where you need help, right? But we don't always know the whole story about each other. The centurion says, Lord, I'm not worthy. He is not relying on the good religious resume that the Jewish elders gave Jesus. He's saying, Jesus, I don't expect you to heal this person because of what I've done. I'm asking you because I've heard about you. I expect you to do it because of who you are. There's a huge difference. 
there are two types of people who pray with expectation. It can look the same on the outside, but it's pretty different on the inside. There are people who pray and expect God to do it because of what they have done. Have you ever been that person? I have been that person at times. And there are people who pray and expect God to do it because of who God is. We get chances to see where we're standing when we get frustrated. Because that's when we're tempted to think about everything we've done that should have earned us a yes. Have you ever been in this, in this kind of situation? I come to church every week. I belong to a life group. I read my Bible. I give a tithe. I'm generous. I serve here. It's so easy to come to prayer hoping that our resume is going to carry us. Because that's how the world works, right? God, I want you to do this because why? Well, because I did this. The problem with that, if you tease it out, is when your need is greater than what you think you deserve. What the heck do you do? I will tell you this, you haven't earned whatever God wants to do in your life by being here every Sunday. Although, I love seeing you here every Sunday. You haven't earned it by going to life group, but you are warmly invited to come on Wednesday to my group at 630 because we're having a great time. You didn't earn it by reading your Bible or giving or serving here, although I'm so grateful for every single one of you that does that. Whether you know it or not, we've always needed God to do something greater than what we deserve. We all need new life. We all need things that we cannot do for ourselves. The good news is that God has always been willing to do more than what we deserve. Always has been. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says, When we were utterly helpless... Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who was especially good, maybe somebody who built a church. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. That's the good news. What we do when we need something and there's no way that we've earned it says a lot. The man in this passage shows us, and then Jesus shows us that, that this is true. So he confesses that he's unworthy, and then he still asks for what he wants. Did you notice that? He didn't say, I'm unworthy, don't bother. He said, I'm unworthy. But the assumption is that he's, you know, that, I mean, he's asking. That's what he wants. And then Jesus does what? Jesus does come. Jesus starts toward him. We can be honest with Jesus when we're not always who we want to be or who we should be. Hopefully, we can be honest with each other, too, in the safety of the love of Christ. We can still, even in that place, have faith that God will do what needs to be done. The devil will try to convince you and me that when we're unworthy, that God is not going to do anything for us. But that's the opposite of what the Bible says. The Bible says that with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can resist the voice and the temptations of the devil. 
And when we have great faith in God, we can confess our unworthiness and still believe that God is able and willing to heal. I was thinking about this. You know, for all the people that uh, Jesus healed in the Bible, um, I never noticed um, that there would be like a, a first line where you went and got your life all fixed, and then you went into Jesus' line and then got healed. That's not how it works in the Bible. Do you think that everybody that Jesus healed in the Bible had all their stuff together? They did not. I'm sure they didn't. So as a follower of Jesus, prayer and asking, it's your privilege. It's also your right. It means that even if I've messed up, I can go to God to clean it up. It means that even when I'm broken, I can ask God to fix it. Even when I drop the ball, I can still ask God to pick it up and make it right. It's not because of what I've done. It's because of who God is. Great faith. Ask Jesus and expects an, a yes but can handle a no or a not that way. And great faith asks when we're unworthy. And then last for today, great faith understands Jesus' authority. The centurion tells Jesus, Lord, you don't have to come to my house at all. I have faith that all you need to do is what? Speak a word from wherever you are. And my servant will be healed. In verse 8, the centurion says, Lord, I'm a man of authority over a bunch of soldiers. So I get it. If I tell one to come, he comes. If I tell him to go, he goes. I say to do this, and they do that. In other words, if I say it, it's going to get done. He's not bragging right here. He's just saying that he understands how authority works. And this isn't specifically said, but it should be obvious he believes that sickness is under Jesus' authority, doesn't he? Why is he asking in the first place? He believes that Jesus has authority over sickness the way that he has authority over soldiers. And Jesus says he's right. Matthew 28, 18. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus said that about himself. Matthew 10, 1, Jesus called his 12 disciples together and gave them authority to cast out evil spirits and to heal every kind of disease and illness. The first verse is about the amazing things that Jesus can do for you and me. And then the second verse is about the amazing things that Jesus wants you and me to do. I'm not going to go more into those right now. That could be an entirely different sermon. Remember my fear of failing? As it turned out, Relying on myself or my friends, my family, or trying to avoid things, none of those things saved me in the end. I graduated in the top 20 of my college class with departmental honors. Things were going as planned. Pretty impressive, right? It's a nice little resume. But then I had a big standardized test at the end of my college career. It's called the GRE, the Graduate Records Examination. It's to get into graduate school. And that was, again, part of my plan, right? Go to graduate school. I was going to go for a master's in industrial organizational psychology. I was going to go for two years, and I was going to have a super high-paying job right out, okay? Getting a good score would get me the attention of those grad schools, okay? And I had 
a history of being awesome at standardized tests. I killed them. I was great. I even took a prep course for this thing. I prayed that I would do well. Other people prayed that I would do well. I did not do well. I remember even being in the break in between the sections, and I'm like, was going to get lunch or something, and I looked down at my shirt, and I think I had overslept that morning a little bit, and um, I looked down, and like the buttons on my shirt, well, I'd missed one, you know, and I went, oh no, this is exactly what's happening to me on the outside and the inside. I'm blowing this. And it, I mean, and for me, I was blowing it. My fears were realized. I had failed. My friends and my family couldn't help me, and I could not hide or ignore what that score said, and then it was a lot lower than I wanted it to be. I didn't look like an academic star if you looked at that score. I'm so glad that Jesus was in my life and that I could give it to him. In retrospect, I think if I hadn't sort of done poorly on that test, I don't think I end up here. In the passage leading into our earlier Romans passage, this is Romans 5, 1 through 5, Jesus talks about how God helps us, okay? And this is how it goes. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into the place of undeserved privilege where we now stand, and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We can rejoice, too, when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope in salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. This series is about the Holy Spirit. We know how dear, dearly God loves us because he's given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. When I wasn't enough, when my friends and my family weren't enough, and when I couldn't run away, Jesus was willing to come to me. Jesus was with me. Jesus was inside me. The Holy Spirit, God lives inside me. Do you forget as a follower of Jesus, that Jesus lives inside of you, like I do sometimes? Do you know that even right now, Jesus lives inside of you? There is a whole lot of Jesus in this room, right now. The Bible calls the Holy Spirit the advocate and the comforter, and that's who the Holy Spirit has been to me. And oh, how I have needed the Holy Spirit. Have you needed the Holy Spirit? How are you answering the pop quizzes that life is giving you today? Are you relying on yourself? Are you relying on the people around you first? Are you trying to run away or fun your way out of it? Or are you bringing it to God first? What would great faith look like for you and me today? Whatever it looks like for you, it will start with bringing whatever you're going through to Jesus. I guarantee you that. Ask Jesus to speak into it and ask Jesus to send the Holy Spirit. 
could look these ways. If it's sickness, bring it to Jesus. Ask him to speak into it and to send the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that Jesus was wounded, was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And by his stripes, we are healed. It's what Jesus has done that makes healing possible. If your life is cracking under pressure, uh, or if you've been feeling like you're under a lot of spiritual attack, bring it to Jesus. Ask him to speak into it. Ask him to send the Holy Spirit. Because the Bible says that all things work together for the good, for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purposes. God can work it out even when it doesn't go the way that you expect it to. If you're hurting financially, bring it to Jesus. Ask him to speak into it, to send the Holy Spirit. The Bible says, my God shall supply all of your needs. It's up to Jesus to do that sort of thing. And if you have enemies, bring it to Jesus. Ask him to speak into it and send the Holy Spirit. In the Bible, God says, I will prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies. And also what God tends to do is he's able to make enemies friends. Who knows what Jesus wants to do? But Jesus wants to do a good thing in your life. The centurion says, speak a word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus says, I like your faith. And the servant is healed. As long as Jesus and the presence of the Holy Spirit are in your life, and you're asking Jesus to speak into things and to send the Holy Spirit, there can be help and healing in your house, just like the centurion found. Do you need any help or healing today? This is where we get a chance to respond to God, and we get to see what God wants to do. I'm going to invite you to stand as you're able. I'm going to have the worship team come up. Uh, prayer team people, if you could get ready to pray, that would be really awesome, super appreciated. Um, we might have some places where, you know, you might need um, you might need God to help you with your faith. Maybe your faith has kind of waned, right? It's, it's up to God to help us, to send the Holy Spirit to build faith in us. Have somebody pray for you that uh, your faith would be uh, increased. Your faith in God, not faith in yourself or anything around you, but your faith in God would be increased. And you might have a place where you need physical healing or some sort of other healing in your life. Jesus tells us to ask and ask and keep on asking. And we never know when these things are released. I've seen people get prayed for and they've got something like physically wrong with them. And then it seems like nothing happens. And then that night or later in that week, like they realize, oh, I don't know what happened, but I'm actually healed, right? We just never know. But God does invite us to ask. And so I, I want us to be faithful to that. Let's give God a chance to give us some stories, friends. I want you to have stories of God's faithfulness. I want you to be reminded that the Holy Spirit is with you and in you and that God is for you, okay? We're going to respond to God in song and in prayer, and they're going to lead us through communion. They'll let us know when it's time to go, but this is our time. This is our time to respond to God, okay? Think about what your response to God would be. Come forward with some prayer. Ask for the Holy Spirit to fill you. Can I just pray that anybody who wants to be filled and reminded of God's presence with you would do, receive that right now? Can I just do that? Um, if God starts doing something with you, come forward and have somebody else uh, support you in that as well. But if you'd like that, just kind of put your hands out. It's not magic, but it is saying, God, I want to be open to what you would have for me.
Jesus, thank you that you promised to send the Holy Spirit to anyone who asks. And we, we ask. Jesus, send the Holy Spirit. And you might be aware of places that you need help. Um, you might also find yourself experiencing like something, maybe a peace over you or maybe a heat, uh, you know, in you or upon you. Uh, it isn't always necessary to know exactly what God's doing because God knows what God's doing. The Holy Spirit is good. And so even if you can't quite figure out what's going on and you're sensing something, just say, yes, Lord. You can do it your way. I have found that things have changed for me and I can't tell you exactly what I did, but I do know that God was involved. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, fill your people again today. And Holy Spirit, remind us of your presence within us, never leaving us. Yeah, I bless you, friends, in the name of Jesus to receive everything that God has for you. worship, let's pray, let's do communion, let's see what God has.